Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I'm blessed to be in dialogue with Professor Omer Bartov. He is the Samuel Pisar Professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown University. Today, we will be discussing his new novel, The Butterfly and the Axe, published in Amsterdam, Netherlands by Amsterdam Publishers 2023. Omer, it's a tremendous honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you so much for having me here. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired you to become a historian and inspired you to write this piece of literature? So um, I was born in Israel in uh, 1954. I was actually born in a kibbutz called Kibbutz Enachoresh, which uh, was at the time a... um, Shomer Atzair Kibbutz, uh, very left-wing. But uh, my parents left it, uh, taking me along uh, when I was only about a year and a half old. So I grew up really in Tel Aviv, um, in Israel of the 1950s, which was a very different place from what it is today. Um, I did spend a couple of years in the United States as a child and a couple of years in Britain as a teenager because of my parents' uh, occupations. I served in the Israeli army for four years, um, which overlapped also with the War of 1973. Um, I then went to university, uh, studied at Tel Aviv University, uh, for my first degree, and then at Oxford University for my PhD. Uh, taught for a few years in Israel at Tel Aviv University, and then came to the United States in the late 1980s and have been here uh, ever since, although I go very often to Israel. I have family and friends there, so I've kept in close touch. Uh, in terms of what... Um, in in my biography is related to the book in some ways everything is um 
so I'd say that I, I grew up in a society that was filled with the uh, Holocaust survivors. So this was always somewhat uh, in the background. Uh, but also a society in which uh, there was great reluctance to talk about the past. Uh, and we tended to, we were educated to look forward to the future uh, as uh, young men and women in a, in a Zionist, uh, ideologically uh, very um, committed uh, country at the time. Um, then in my research as a historian, I studied uh, Nazi Germany uh, at some depth. And in more recent years, I studied, I spent 20 years really studying the area in which my mother was born. Uh, and I wrote a book about the town uh, in which he was born, Anatomy of a Genocide, the Life and Death of a Town Called Buchach. So that by the time I got around to writing this book, which had been on my mind since the 1980s, but was waiting there. I knew a great deal about the history of uh, that region that I write about, the region which my mother was born and from which my family came, and in which the vast majority of my family was murdered. But I realized that I knew nothing about how my own family was actually killed. Um, I, I knew a great deal about what happened there, but not what happened to them. And so in that sense, this was at the core of my motivation to try and imagine what I could not document as a historian. What are the primary themes in this novel? What message or messages does this novel convey? I think um, the, the number of messages, if you like. I, I, I can't say that I wrote the novel with a message. Um, I'm, I don't even think so much of writing fiction with a message, but it has some underlying themes that were important to me and I think uh, can be of interest to readers. Uh, the first is, as I said, that um, a sort of fundamental um, conundrum, fundamental problem with writing history, especially a history of destruction, of genocide, or of specifically the case of the Holocaust, is that when you write about those events, you're writing about destruction, and one of the things that gets destroyed are people and documents. Uh, and so in order to reconstruct that, uh, as a historian, you have to use documents. And and so in a sense, when you are trying to reconstruct uh, genocide, to reconstruct the Holocaust um, on the basis of the, the existing documentation, you tend to miss out on many of the victims of that event who left no record and who have been forgotten and sort of erased. And so one major motivation in writing this novel uh, was not only to reconstruct what happened in, in the imagination, to reconstruct what happened to members of my family, but to provide a sort of different way of thinking about how do we write about events, the victims of which uh, were erased not only physically, but also from memory. So this is at the core of it. Uh, the, the two more specific issues that I'm interested in 
is um, on two levels, I would say, in the novel. One is what happened at the time. So what happened at the time and what is known is that there was a specific murder of a particular Jewish family, um, a, a, a couple, a young man and, and, and woman, uh, and the, the young daughter and a baby. Uh, and they were murdered in a Ukrainian village in the spring of 1944, but we know nothing about what happened there. Uh, and so one um, theme uh, in the novel is an attempt to find out what happened through uh, a variety of sources, um, uh, through testimonies, through memories, through letters, confessions, uh, conversations, visits to the place, and so forth. Uh, so that's a kind of uh, investigatory impulse. What happened there? The, and and obviously, when you do that, whether you do it as a as a writer or as a historian, you discover that there are various versions to what happened. Or if you do it, say, in a courtroom. Uh, and you may or may not accept uh, the one or more of these versions, um, but you never entirely uh, get to the truth of what precisely happened. The second theme that really interested me and the two main characters in the novel uh, embody that is that that uh, murder that occurred uh, decades and decades ago had an effect on generations afterwards uh, despite the fact that they did not know what happened. Um, and so this horror that occurs in spring of 1944 seeps from one generation to another. And I'm focusing on, on two people who are grandchildren of the characters who were involved there, uh, who, one of whom is Ukrainian, uh, although he grew up in Britain because his grandfather came to Britain after World War II, and the other is Jewish, Israeli, uh, because her um, grandparents uh, came to Palestine in the 1930s. And both of them discover th over the novel how uh, badly influenced, how wounded they were by that event because it had such an effect on their grandparents and on their parents. And the memory of that trauma, the sort of um, transgenerational trauma affected them. And in a sense, the I guess if we're talking about a message, it is that sometimes the only way to understand what it is that is eating you from within, that is obstructing you in your own life, is to return to that moment of the trauma, or as I say, to return to the scene of the crime and to try and reconstruct what it was that happened. And as they do that, these two, this man and woman, uh, become close to each other they begin to empathetically understand the other, although they, so to speak, belong to two different camps, uh, as it was at the time of the murder itself. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Well, I'd, I'd like them, first of all, to uh, be interested in the novel uh, and to uh, give it a try. Uh, it's, it, it's, uh, it's not conventional, I would say, uh, but I think... Uh, it, it tells you something about that past that we usually don't talk about or don't talk about in this way. Uh, 
And I'd like them more generally, I think, to think differently about the relationship between uh, the past as history and uh, the past as imagination. Um, my, you know, my my feeling has always been that in, we don't know the past well enough. And it's often hard to access through scholarship because uh, scholars write uh, books that most people don't don't really have the time or or, or interest in reading. Uh, and I think that you can access that past, which is important to all of us, say if we examine now what is happening in the areas that I started writing on before the war in Russia and Ukraine, or the Russian invasion of Ukraine began, uh, if, if you read this kind of fiction, you gain some understanding both of the past and of the impact of the past on the present. And that I think is what um, is at the core of what I'm trying to do and what I hope the readers will get out of this book. How does this novel help us contextualize the current Russia-Ukraine war in new ways? So it's a, it's a, it's a very strange thing for me because, uh, you know, I spent uh, 20 years studying this region and uh, uh, at the time, very few people in America for sure uh, knew much about Ukraine in general and the area that I was uh uh, spending much time in Western Ukraine, which used to be actually a part of Poland in the past, uh, known as Eastern Galicia, and before that, even part of Austria. Um, um, so in, in, since last year, um, suddenly this place has uh, returned to the news uh, in in pretty horrible ways. That is uh, horrible destruction of of, of human beings, uh, cities, uh, infrastructure, um, and, and horrendous brutality. And I think that um, if 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 you read my book and and there there are others, of course, you will understand the sort of deeper um, undercurrents that explain to people on the ground why this war is happening. Uh, whereas for us, living in the West, living out of that area, and not knowing that history, uh, everything appears a bit strange. Why is this happening? Why are these two very closely related um, peoples uh, fighting each other so bitterly? Um, and so I think if if you understand part of what you read in the book has to do with the sense of uh, Ukrainian desire for independence from foreign rule, uh, foreign rule by Poles, foreign rule by Germans, and for, foreign rule by Russians. And that goes back all the way to World War II, uh, and even before that. Uh, um, and so for many Ukrainians, um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is yet another attempt to rid them or to take away from them the independence that they finally gained with the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. Um, and so the book, in some ways, gives you a glimpse into uh, how Ukrainians uh, would feel about this war on the basis uh, of what had happened already eight decades ago. In what ways is this novel interconnected with your previous history scholarship, or in what ways is it not connected? 
Can you comment about the relationship between this current work of literature and your previous work in history? Yeah, you know, for me, this is actually uh, a very uh, sort of interesting question because uh, you get to a certain age in your life where you try to find logic in what you did in the past. And if you look hard enough, you you may find it. Um, now, it may have not been there when you started off, but somehow partly by plan, partly by coincidence, partly just by instinct, uh, something like that was created. So when I think about this novel now, I actually think of it as part of what I would call a quartet of which uh, three parts have been written and the fourth uh, I'm working on right now. Um, so um, my my book, Anatomy of a Genocide, which came out in 2018, as I said, was really a historical study of what happened in that area uh, before and during the Holocaust. And it ends up with a very sort of, with an anatomy of a genocide, that is with a very close look into what occurs there on the ground in one town. Um, and it uses a great deal of um, 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 first-person accounts of testimonies of trial proceedings and so forth to to get close to how people experience that event. Um, as I said, um, what um, I discovered after writing it was that I knew everything about, or as much as I could as a historian, about what happened there, but not uh, about my own family. And so the novel is an attempt to fill in that gap. Uh, so these two works uh, in relationship to each other, one is what we know about uh, what happened on the basis of documents, and one is an attempt to fill in the gap that we cannot um, write about uh, as a documentary history. The other two uh, legs of uh, this quartet uh, a book that I more recently published in, um, in June of 2022, uh, Tales from the Borderlands, that tells many of the stories of that area before the genocide. Uh, and that some of these are themes that are also, also appear in the novel, that is who those people were, where they came from, what sort of lives they led before all the violence began. Um, and and the last book that I'm still working on now is actually on the next generation. So in many ways, the, the protagonist of uh, uh, The Butterfly and the Axe uh, are members of the next generation. And um, they are imagined, but they're imagined on the basis of many such individuals that are intimately known to me. Uh, and the book that I am writing now is about that next generation of people who grew up in what became the state of Israel, born in the 1950s and 60s, who very gradually come into an understanding of the world that they had come from, so to speak, that is, that their families had come from. So in that sense, the novel uh, imagines what the history books try to document, and that's the relationship that I'm especially interested in. What does this novel teach us about memory and amnesia? <clears throat> um, I, I, I think um, it teaches us that memory, 
let me put it that way. Um, it, I said that some many, many years ago that um, you cannot forget what you don't remember. So um, in, in order for us to have amnesia, there, there is something that occurred and that at some point we remembered or could have remembered. And then that was either erased from memory, forgotten or distorted uh, or lied about uh, or obfuscated. And so there's obviously a very close relationship between memory and amnesia. One cannot uh, exist uh, without the other. Uh, in the novel, um, the attempt to recreate that past uh, is under circumstances where different people want to remember the past differently. Uh, and they either uh, cannot access it or they do not want it to remember the way it was because it's uh, too painful or they don't want to, it to be remembered as it was because they were complicit in crimes in it or complicit in acts that they are not particularly proud of. Uh, and so the, the, what the novel tries to do is a kind of archaeology of memory with different people, different voices, uh, talking about the past in ways that both reveal what happened in that past, but also try to describe it in a particular way that may be more helpful to them, to their legacy, to the way they want to be remembered or thought of by their children or grandchildren. Uh, and so in that sense, it is uh, centrally about memory, forgetting, erasure, and amnesia. And I'd say that uh, it, 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 in that sense, it's really about an era uh, that we are still grappling with precisely on that level. If you just think again about uh, the war between Russia and Ukraine, or you think about uh, writing and speaking about the Holocaust, we are always talking about uh, what we must remember. And in talking about what we must remember or what we must never forget, we are also always not remembering because we're saying there are things we should remember, the things we don't need to, or maybe we shouldn't remember. Uh, and that struggle between the two is at the core of the novel itself through the characters rather than in this sort of theoretical uh, manner that I'm speaking about it right now. What does your novel teach us about trauma? How does PTSD show up in the story? What are the different manifestations? Right, so so it 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 shows up in uh, another in in various ways. Um, um, the I'd say um, the 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 most central element of um, trauma in this novel is that the two main characters, Tali and Andri, uh, the Israeli woman and the Ukrainian man, uh, are obviously um, products of its uh, not exactly of PTSD, or that is another matter concerning them. Uh, but of uh, transgenerational trauma. Uh, that is, that they know that something terrible happened in the past. Uh, they know that it happened in ways that affected members of their own family. And they know that the effect of that on previous generations of their own family affected them. 
but they don't know exactly what happened and they don't know exactly how it affected them. And so in that sense, in, and I think that's obviously not only with these two characters, but uh, uh, we know of, of many people, or second, third generation, say, to survivors of the Holocaust who have uh, identified that kind of syndrome of transgenerational trauma. So that's uh, one aspect of it. The second, uh, there are individuals there who, who have had also uh, more direct, um, what we would call PTSD. So Tali uh, speaks about the fact that uh, during the Gulf War, uh, when uh, Israel was uh, being attacked by uh, uh, missiles uh, from Iraq, uh, two of those Scud missiles landed on her neighborhood. Uh, and she got so terrified by that, she was feeling that she was being targeted uh, personally, that she escapes to the desert uh, for the rest of the war. But as she tries to understand what it is uh, that that happened to her and why that then uh, PTSD returns years later, she begins to think that, in fact, the core of that was something much earlier than that. That is, that her mother had never recovered from her own childhood and that her grandmother uh, is a person who is deeply uh, traumatized by the circumstances of leaving her home uh, in the late in the 1930s. Uh, and so that there is the deeper layers uh, to trauma that are generational, familial, uh, and that go back to a world that she actually knows nothing about. So this is what I mean, where you have different layers of trauma and one is related in complex ways to another. What does your novel teach us about the experiences of Holocaust survivors in Israeli social history? Yes, that's uh, another complex uh, question. I think uh, in the novel, um, the the what I'm actually interested in the novel is not only those who came to Israel after the war as Holocaust survivors. Uh, and there is uh, one character there, Izzy, that I, I will talk about in a moment, but also those who came um, before the war. Uh, so they, they barely escaped. Uh, what happened later on to the rest of their families. And they they have a complex relationship to that event. That is, they were not there when, when it happened, uh, and yet their entire families were wiped out. That uh, sense, if you know um, what is called sometimes um, uh, survivor's guilt, uh, uh, leaves a stamp on um, those people, and later on, uh, on further on on future generations, having actually not been there, but almost having been there. Uh, in the story that I tell, uh, very few people uh, come out. Most of the people who remain there die there, but one person does arrive. And I'm I'm interested in this character Izzy because uh, when he comes to uh, Israel after the war, 
um, in, uh, as the sole survivor of this entire family, of the Schumer family, uh, he's not welcomed by them. And he's not welcomed by them because there are rumors uh, that he was a policeman, that he survived because uh, he cooperated in one way or another uh, with, the, with the Germans, with the perpetrators. Um, and eventually we find a letter that he left um, behind explaining uh, his own experience. And in some ways, the letter, uh, I would say, embodies not only the horrible choices that people had to make at the time, <clears throat> and possibly the, 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 the injustice that was done to them by judging them, uh, people judging them who were never under those circumstances and have no idea how they would have acted, but also that people who came out of hell and came to Israel, and not only to Israel, it could have been to the United States or to France, um, there was a kind of myth that they did not want to speak about what happened, but in many, many cases, and that's in the case of this uh, character in the novel, Izzy, uh, nobody wanted to listen to them. Uh, and they did not talk because no one listened. Uh, and people did not want to listen because they were afraid of what they would be told. They did not really want to know what happened. And they said, just you have to adapt to things as they are. And that is something that happened very much in Israel uh, in the early years. And the first opening, historically, of speaking about that was the Eichmann trial uh, in 1961-62. So that's uh, almost two decades after the end of the war. Can you explain the plot or plots in this novel? Can you summarize the interwoven storylines? Yes, I can I can try. It's, <laughs> uh, so the novel begins with... Uh, there, there's one character in the, in the novel who's not named, and he's the narrator, and he's a kind of historian. He lives in North America, and uh, at the beginning of the novel, he's informed that his father is, um, uh, is about to die. His father is very old, uh, and so he gets on a plane, and he goes to Tel Aviv, where his father lives, and he is with his father for uh, the last days of his life, and then he stays there for the Shiva, for the mourning period, or for part of the mourning period. Uh, and as he is going through uh, this experience, uh, he also encounters, as one often does, images of the past. That is, in the most physical way, that he's sitting in the Shiva and he's looking through photo albums of the family that he hadn't looked at for a very long time, or sometimes never. Uh, but there's nobody left to tell him who are the people in these photos, because the last person who could have told him was his father, but the reason he's there the Shiva is that his father has already died. Um, <clears throat> and this is the kind of opening into the, the first window into where the novel is going. And on the last day of the Shiva, the narrator meets a slightly younger woman, uh, and that woman tells him that she's actually related to him. And they meet and she tells him about a trip that she made to the area where both their families, they're related, where their family came from. Uh, 
So from that moment, we move into this woman is Tali, and we move into her journey back geographically, spatially, and temporally. She's moving back into a trip that she made over a decade earlier. And that trip is about finding out what it was that happened uh, in Galicia. And in that trip, during that trip, she encounters uh, this British-Ukrainian man, Andri, and they travel together in West Ukraine, what used to be East, East Galicia, to the um, hometown of the Jewish family <clears throat> and to the village where the Jewish family came and where this Ukrainian, uh, British-Ukrainian man, Andri's uh, grandfather, had come from. So that's uh, the other strand. Um, the narrator himself becomes increasingly interested uh, in, in the story and starts looking for other types of documentation. And gradually between them, the Ukrainian man with his relationship with his grandfather, who was in the village, uh, during the murder, and as we turn out, was as it turns out, was actually uh, complicit uh, in what happened there. The grandfather uh, Mihailo, um, th through Tali's own uh, investigations and through various documentation that uh, the narrator finds, we gradually uh, begin to put together the story of what occurred uh, in that village. Uh, and so at the end of the novel, um, we, um, when Mikhailo, the grandfather, dies, uh, he leaves behind a confession uh, only to his grandson, whom he greatly loved, uh, to Andri. And through the confession, we get his version of what happened, which he had never told anyone. Um, among other things, uh, in the confession, he mentions that he found a diary at the site of the murder of that Jewish family uh, and had given it uh, to a uh, researcher um, in, a, um, in a DP camp, in a displaced persons camp in Austria uh, after the war. And that diary is found by the narrator, who is a professional historian. And that is a diary of the little girl who was there uh, at the site of the murder. And so we get her version of events up to, but of course not including the murder itself. Uh, and so the novel really tells you the story of how from the death of the patriarch of the family, we start going back all the way to the beginning and to the end of part of that family and what actually occurred um, in, in that remote village in the spring of 1944. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. 
They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Can you say more about the character Andre? What happens to him in the course of the story? Uh, yes, Andre is a character I'm, I'm interested in. He's, uh, I was curious about him as I was writing uh, him up. Uh, so Andre uh, is born in uh, England to a working class family. His, uh, his grandfather was a Ukrainian peasant who came after the war, we later discovered that he didn't just come for economic reasons. He came because he was afraid of Soviet uh, retribution. Uh, and and uh, his father uh, became a mechanic. Uh, so André grows up in, um, in a simple home in, uh, in, in a working class family. Uh, his father wants to distance himself entirely from all the myth and lore that the grandfather tries to impose on him of Ukrainian nationalism and all that. He wants to be an, a normal Englishman. But ironically, he marries a Ukrainian woman who is actually, uh, she is from Kiev, but she is partly Russian and partly Jewish. She's half Jewish. Uh, and her grandparents were, in fact, murdered in Babiar. Um, and this, uh, Andre's mother, then, is the sort of more intellectual uh, and uh, somewhat, I'd say, conflicted uh, member of his family. Uh, Andre himself is torn between wanting to be like his father, uh, work with his hands, uh, be a good mechanic, and his mother's side, uh, which sort of pushes him to go and study because he's a very bright kid. But he's most uh, influenced by his grandfather. Uh, he, he's very much taken by his grandfather's stories about heroism and the war of liberation for Ukraine. Uh, and it's largely because of his grandfather that he decides to go and um, do a PhD on the history of Ukrainian nationalism in that area of Ukraine, where actually Ukrainian nationalism began. And so despite this sort of class consciousness, uh, he does go and first as a first degree in Sheffield University and then goes to Oxford and uh, gets a PhD. And the year that he meets Tali in uh, Lviv in West Ukraine is uh, just after he has finished his PhD and he wants to spend some time in Ukraine. He speaks Ukrainian from home, from his grandfather, but he wants now to spend some time in that country. And he's also increasingly suspicious of the stories that his grandfather told him. He feels that there's something that doesn't quite match up. And so his plan is to go to the village, to the ancestral village, and to see if he can still find out maybe something that happened there that his grandfather didn't tell him. But he's afraid of doing that, and he finally resolves to do it only after he meets Tali, who is on her own quest. Can you tell us more about Tali? Can you contextualize this character in the novel for us? 
Yes, Tali is a, is a beautiful woman. Um, uh, when the uh, narrator meets her, she's already well into middle age. Um, uh, she, she's a beautiful and adventurous woman with a very, very fraught past. Uh, Tali's mother uh, was not uh, of sound mind. Uh, Tali was her only daughter. She does not know uh, who her father was. And because her mother was not well, uh, Tali already as a child uh, was sent to a kibbutz uh, to be educated as what they called at the time uh, external children. So there were sort of institutions for children, some of whom were Holocaust survivors and some of whom came from what was called in Israel then broken families. And so she basically, her mother, she doesn't have much contact with her mother. She doesn't know who her father is. And she grows up in a kibbutz, uh, which she does not like. Uh, she has intellectual ambitions. Uh, but finds herself being abused by one of her teachers. Um, so her years in the kibbutz are very hard, seven very hard years. She then goes to the army, uh, doesn't particularly like her service in the army, uh, but does it like everyone else, and then goes to university. And she is obviously very bright, and she may have a sort of academic future, but she gets into a another difficult relationship with one of her professors who ends up really sexually abusing her. And she leaves academe very bitterly and becomes a travel agent. And being a travel agent works quite well for her in the sense that she can travel. Uh, and in that sense, she is rootless. She knows that there is a sort of bitter core at her beginning, which dates back, why is her mother the way she is? And that goes back to her grandmother who came from the ancestral town in the 1930s. And she's looking, um, Tali is, for, for what is it that made her life uh, so miserable? Um, and so for her, this... Uh, um, journey to Ukraine is not simply to find out what happened uh, in spring 1944, but really what happened to her and why she is the way she is. And her encounter with Andri doesn't resolve it, but creates a, a very different kind of layer of empathy rather than one of resentment and bitterness. Uh, and to me, uh, that is interesting because it's the meeting of so-called enemies or people from the other side that helps her look more empathetically into her own past, into her own self through that relationship with Andri. What can you tell us about the character Rochale? Can you describe what happens to her in the story? Yes, so so Rochale is um, the sister of the um, of Tali's grandfather and of the narrator's uh, grandfather. Uh, they are two brothers. So, um, um, and while the two brothers, uh, Yaakov and Adolf, uh, leave 
Galicia in the 1930s, Rochan stays. Uh, she, she marries, uh, she marries an academic, uh, which is very rare at the time. This is not a family of academics. This is a family, the, the great-grandfather is an estate manager, uh, and they're working men. Uh, they, they work in agriculture, in commerce. Or, um, uh, she marries an academic. She herself wanted to have a, a, a better education, but the circumstances did not allow for that. So she marries um, uh, Max uh, Reichert, who uh, has an academic degree. And because of that, she's called the jewel in the crown. Uh, so she's referred to as the jewel in the crown, the sort of most beloved daughter uh, of, of the family. Um, her husband, Max, however, cannot uh, find a job as a teacher, certainly not as a professor in 1930s Poland, uh, and ends up uh, having to agree to uh, run one of uh, his um, father-in-law's uh, businesses, which is a, a mill in one of the villages, very far from what uh, Rochale had hoped to have. Uh, the, she also then has a daughter uh, by him, who is called Judith, um, a young girl. Um, Rochale and Max and uh, Judith end up uh, hiding uh, in the ancestral village uh, on the banks of the Dniester uh, during uh, the Holocaust. Uh, and during that time, uh, another child is born, a baby called, uh, whom they call David. Uh, and it is Judith, uh, Rochale's daughter, who writes a diary in Hebrew, uh, which she doesn't know that well, but as a kind of gesture of rebellion against all those people who are trying to kill them. Uh, and it is that diary that eventually is found by the narrator. Um, and then Rochale and Max and Judith and David are murdered. Can you tell us about Yaakov and Adolf Sumer? What happens to them in the story? So uh, Adolf and Yaakov are two brothers. Um, they, they grow up uh, in that village. Uh, that's... Uh, uh, a remote village on the on the Dniester uh, called uh, in the book Miezhen or Meren uh, in Ukrainian. Um, their father is the estate manager, and so they grew up as farm boys. They're two big, tall, strong young men. Uh, they have a a close relationship with the two uh, sons of the. Uh, of the Duchess, the 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 um, the owner of the estate. Her husband had died, uh, and she is the um, owner of the estate. Um, and her two sons are friends with the Jacob uh, and Adolf. Uh, but the family, the owners of the estate, are an ancient. Uh, uh, aristocratic Polish family, and these two young Jewish boys are just uh, basically farm boys. Uh, but they have an, a happy childhood there. Later on, uh, they move. Uh, so they move to a larger town uh, in the area, um, and uh, Adolf is the first to leave 
to Palestine. He leaves to Palestine not because he's a Zionist, he leaves to Palestine because he's a communist. And the Polish, the Polish police is on his tracks, and so he leaves to Palestine. It's the only place that he can go to. Uh, and Adolf goes uh, to uh, Palestine with a young woman. Uh, that young woman is called Tova, uh, and she is the grandmother of Tali. Um, and Tova is a young woman uh, in the town who uh, is just desperate to leave that town. Uh, there's, uh, she herself is an orphan. Uh, she's poor. She sees no future to herself in that town. And so uh, she leaves with him. And the idea is that they would have a fictional marriage uh, simply to get a certificate of immigration, which was needed at the time to go to Palestine. Uh, but on the way to Palestine, um, um, Adolf falls in love with Tova. This was not planned. Uh, he's an older man. He's 10 years older. He's quite handsome. So she's somewhat taken with him. But once they get to Palestine, this marriage doesn't work out at all. Uh, he has to work as a construction worker. She wants to have a good life. He tries to uh, provide for her. Uh, and eventually she ends up having uh, numerous affairs and the marriage uh, breaks down. Uh, and that is why part of the reason that the daughter um, uh, is, so, is so unhappy, uh, Tari's mother uh, ends up being uh, so unhappy. Um, uh, Yaakov, the older brother, is a Zionist. And he comes a few years later uh, to Palestine uh, with his wife, uh, the, his daughter, who is the narrator's mother, and two uh, other boys. Um, one event that happens to uh, these two men uh, occurs in uh, 1943 uh, in Palestine, that is during World War II, when one of the uh, boys who used to play with them uh, in uh, in the ancestral village, uh, who had been while being deported by the Soviets to the Soviet Union, and then joined the Polish army that was formed after the German invasion of Russia, known as the Anders Army, uh, ends up in Palestine. This Polish army was sent through southern Russia, Iran, Palestine to fight in Italy, and this man Yannick. Uh, who um, ends up as a soldier in Palestine for a few months, looks them up. And they meet all those years later after the childhood in the ancestral village. Uh, and he tells them about what happened to their community, about the mass murder of the Jews in that community. And then he goes on to fight in Italy. Uh, so they are the the last generation of that family in Galicia, and the first uh, to come to Palestine. Can you tell us about Judith Reichert. What role does she play in your story? So Judith is the is the is um, uh, Rochale's daughter, and she's a young girl. Um, she she's born in the nineteen thirties, and in nineteen thirty nine. Uh, on the eve of World War II, uh, um, Tova, uh, who is Adolf's wife and quite unhappy by then in Palestine, uh, takes her daughter with her, Hanale, uh, 
who is Tari's mother, uh, who is also a small child, and goes to visit the family. Uh, obviously, they don't know that the war is about to break out. Uh, and uh, Adolf um, uh, manages to raise enough money to let them go there. And so these two young women, um, 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 Tova and, um, and Rochale, uh, meet in the ancestral village, and the two young girls, uh, Judith and Hanale, uh, meet each other and become very good friends and play there. It's, it's a beautiful place. It's in the forest. Uh, there's a big river there, the Dniester. Uh, so they stay there for a couple of weeks, and then they leave. And now all we know about what happens with Judith thereafter is from all kinds of documents, the most important of which is written by Judith herself. And Judith writes about what happens to her as a child or as a very young teenager uh, during the war. Uh, during the war, uh, her parents deposit her uh, they want to save her, so they deposit her under the care of a Polish-Ukrainian family in a nearby village. Uh, and she is cared for by Polish and Ukrainian women, but she's also abused uh, by a Ukrainian man, the brother-in-law of the woman who is sheltering her. Uh, and she writes about it as a child would, uh, not entirely explicitly, so what she leaves behind is a diary of extraordinary fear and terror and longing to somehow be finally liberated from these conditions and not knowing what is happening with her parents. And then toward the end of her diary, she reports that uh, her parents had sent communication that they're now in the ancestral village and she is taken there by a peasant who, who brings her to their shelter uh, on the, the estate, the what used to be the estate that the grandfather uh, had managed. Uh, and she writes about finally being with her parents and now she has a little brother. And she's filled with hope that finally she will be liberated. Uh, the morning of the murder, uh, she wakes up and she hears that the Germans who are in the area are leaving. And that is a sign that the war is basically over for them, that in, in a day or two, or maybe in a few hours, the Red Army would come and liberate them. And that's where she finishes her diary. But as we know uh, from Mikhailo's confession, uh, shortly thereafter, the family was murdered. Can you tell us about Hutsul Dimitro? What role does he play in your story? So Dimitro is um, uh, a Hutsul. The Hutsuls are a, uh, an ethnic group uh, related to Ukrainians uh, who live in the Carpathian Mountains. And if you look at the geography of what used to be Galicia and now is West Ukraine, uh, west, um, the, the, the western part of that province uh, are the uh, eastern slopes of the Carpathian mountain range, which goes all the way from Poland down to Romania. Uh, and so in these mountains, there, there, there is this uh, ethnic group that uh, works in logging at the time. 
as uh, loggers, as fishermen, as hunters, uh, and so forth. A uh, very sort of proud uh, nation. And there's also Jewish communities there. And as Dmitro says, uh, the Jews who live there are very different. They're muscle Jews. They're Jews who work like everybody else, uh, hard physical labor, but they pray to their own God. Uh, Dmitro uh, comes down from the mountains and takes over uh, the management of the estate that until then had been managed uh, by the patriarch of the Schumer family. Um, um, and the estate had been run by members of the Schumer family for generations. Uh, but uh, the, the last patriarch uh, decides to sell it, and it's taken over for the first time by a non-Jew. Uh, this is a Polish estate in a Ukrainian village run by a Jew and now by a Hutu. And so he's very proud, uh, Dmitro, of having uh, now taken over responsibility uh, for running the estate. The village is a little suspicious of him because he's Ukrainian, but not exactly. But they're happy that they're no longer being managed by Jews. This is a period in which there's a growing sort of anti-Jewish sentiment, to put it uh, mildly. Uh, he, is, uh, he has a wife, a young wife, uh, Oksana, uh, a beautiful young woman who is pregnant at the time when we encounter him. Uh, and shortly after the war breaks out, when the Germans and the Russians invade that area, uh, they have twins. Uh, what we know from various reports in the novel is that at some point in 1944, uh, Dmitro uh, uh, decides to shelter some Jews uh, on the estate uh, in a barn. Uh, and as we discover, the Jews he's sheltering are actually then the descendants of uh, the patriarch uh, of Schumer, who had been his predecessor as manager of the estate. Uh, and he protects them until a group of um, Ukrainian liberation fighters, uh, who were, among other things, involved in killing Jews, uh, come to the estate having heard rumors that he is hiding Jews, and as he tries to protect them, they kill him. And then they proceed to uh, carry out the killing of the Jews in the barn. What does this novel teach us about love? Um, I think that there, there are many types of love in the novel, um, as there would be in any life. Um, so... I th I think that the love that is most complex, and uh, and to me uh, um, most interesting, is the love uh, between Tali and Andri. Uh, on one level, it's a sort of love at first sight, although Tali denies it. They meet and they instantly like each other, but they only spend two weeks together. And then they don't see each other for 13 years. And it's only later that they meet again. Uh, but those two weeks that they spend together because of the nature of those two weeks and what they discover during that period uh, and the ongoing, not that frequent communications between them uh, make that change from a sort of love at first sight, which may not be that profound, to a relationship that is very deep, 
um, and that in a sense it's between two wounded souls who can understand each other precisely because of the wounds that were inflicted on them. Uh, so that I think is the is the most interesting one for me uh, because it's 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 unlikely in a sense. It's and and it works its way in different and complex ways. And both of them try not to become a couple. They have other relationships and and only toward the end of the novel, they end up together again. There are other types of love. There is uh, the love of the narrator to his father uh, with which the novel begins. And it's also a complex love because uh, the narrator obviously uh, loves his father, knows his father loves him, but they've never had very good communication with each other. And in some ways, uh, that is something at the core of the narrator's, I'd say, maybe absence. There's something missing there uh, in, in, in his ability to empathize. And as he tells Tali at some point, he's only interested in facts, not in feelings. Uh, so he is a bit... Um, because of, or as an expression of, his inability uh, to love his father more directly in a less complicated manner, uh, there, there is some absence in him, some, some emotional absence in him. And he obviously uh, begins to love Tali as well, but uh, he can't quite express that. Uh, and so it's a sort of underlying theme there uh, in the novel. Then there is the love between uh, Andri and his grandfather. Uh, and his grandfather obviously loves him, but lies to him his entire life. And Andri becomes increasingly aware of the fact that his grandfather lied to him, and not only lied to him, but also lied to him about something very important, that is, the, that he was uh, complicit in a crime. And yet he still loves him. Uh, and um, that too is a love which I would say is at the, at the core of the novel because in some ways, I'd say all of us um, 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 don't always tell the truth. And sometimes it is the things we don't talk about, the things we obfuscate, the things we lie about, uh, that uh, we do that because of we love someone else, because we want that person also to love us. And yet at the core of that very pure emotion uh, is an untruth. And the fear of revealing that untruth and of uh, destroying the love is uh, what keeps us in this uh, uncomfortable, painful balance between truth and and untruth. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about where your time has gone since completing this novel? Uh, in various ways, but I'd say one thing that I spent uh, uh, several months on was translating the novel, which I wrote in English, into Hebrew. Uh, Hebrew is my first language, uh, but I wrote it, I wrote the novel in English, and I think it was easier for me to write it in English uh, for a variety of reasons, in part uh, giving me some distance uh, from these events, 
but as I was saying to uh, my editor, um, I was translating the novel into the original language uh, because in some ways, uh, English, of course, is a language that nobody spoke uh, there. I mean, people spoke Russian and Ukrainian and Polish and Hebrew and Yiddish, uh, but nobody spoke English. Uh, and so uh, uh, Hebrew uh, is much closer to those events. So I spent a fair amount translating it in a way that I felt uh, would not feel translated. Uh, that would be like it had been originally written in Hebrew, and I was helped by a very good friend who um, then helped me edit it. So this is one thing I spent a lot of time on. The other is what I said, uh, the fourth leg of this, what I see as a quartet, I spent several months in Israel just recently uh, yeah. interviewing large numbers of people, um, mostly uh, on their link to the place. I interviewed about 55 people, both uh, Jews and Palestinians. Uh, and that is something that will form the basis of my next book. I wish you the best of luck with that project. Thank you. Uh, Omer, it was an absolute honor to be in dialogue with you today. I could not be more thankful for you for your erudite, magnanimous, and thoughtful answers. Well, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to speak with you. To our listeners, uh, I am your host today on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. I've been humbled to be in dialogue with Professor Omer Bartov. He is the Samuel Pisar Professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown University. We have been discussing his new novel, The Butterfly and the Axe, published in Amsterdam, Netherlands by Amsterdam Publishers 2023. Thank you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.